I'm Dana Harris, Editor-in-Chief of IndieWire, and this is IndieWire Influencers. I'm sitting here with Drew Goddard, who is the screenwriter of The Martian, and it's a terrific film, and this is coming from somebody who, in all candor, I'm not a sci-fi geek. I'm not, I am not your core audience. It's not something that I would initially say, yes, I've got to go see this. I mean, the, yes, the Ridley Scott is great and the uh, Matt Damon is great, but the sci-fi stuff wasn't what would get me. That said, now that I've seen it, the sci-fi stuff is awesome. But I think that's a large degree to do with, I think, a sense of realism. And I kind of want to talk about that. Um, First of all, talk to me about adapting a book like this. I mean, there's a real sense of humor in um, Alan Weir's novel. And but at the same time, it was sort of a, um, a hidden gem. It was a self-published on Amazon. So it's like, how do you approach something like that? How do you approach, you know, a piece like this? Yeah, I tend to come, uh, come to all of these things from the same place, which is I try to only say yes to things I love. And this was, it was sent to me as an ebook. And I, I didn't really even know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. When the when Aditya, the producer, called me and said, look at this. This guy's just been publishing this a chapter a month for the last three years. Now, when was that? When did they? So that would have been, it was before the book had a publishing deal. Yeah. So it would have been, I want to say, January, February of 2013. Okay, so it was published, I think, in September 2012. Yeah. Okay. okay. But so, so at that point, 2012. There was, oh, then, then it, it was yeah. published September 20 as as an ebook. It was published in 2012. Yes, right. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. Um. And so, um. And Adithia just said, just read it. It's good. And and he was right. You know. And and I I loved it. And then when you love it, it makes your job easier in this business because you can you can fight for things because a sure. lot of what you're doing as a screenwriter is getting bills through Congress. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sort of half of your job is doing that. And and I, we knew this was going to be a hard one, but because it's not, you know, it's a bestseller now, mm-hmm. but at the time, it, it's not the thing that studios are looking for. There's sure. no there's no superheroes punching each other. There's no stuff like that, you know, and I love that stuff too. But yeah. you know, it's going to be hard to convince a studio to make such a thing. Sure. And so it really became, so you, you have to fall back on what do you, do you love it? And I read Andy's novel and I just thought, I love this thing. Let's figure out how to do it. So what was, what was the, the point for you that, that kind of helped you unlock that? Yeah. So I, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I read it one night and then the next day read it again. And then the next day read it again. And I was pacing around and my wife, at the time I was sort of debating between a couple other projects. They were, they were a better business decision. Let's yeah. say that. Um, uh, and I said to my wife, I think I may do this ebook instead. And she said, okay, tell me about it. What, what is it about it? That, why is the, why, why are you thinking about it? And I, I didn't know. And I started describing the book to her and she said, oh, it, so- it sounds like your hometown. And I realized, oh, and, and I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, sure. around rocket scientists. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't put that together when I read the book. But as soon as she said it, I thought, oh, okay, that's what it is. That's why I can't stop thinking about this. Because he captured, Andy captured scientists the way I'm used to hearing, I've been used to hearing scientists talk my whole life, mm-hmm. which I don't normally see on screen. Because there's this sort of, the humor of scientists, I think there's a very specific type of humor that goes with scientists. And Andy captured it. And he captured the sort of, uh, I kept, when we were um, in production, I kept calling it the threadbare quality, mm-hmm. where it's it, you get the rough edges of, of science. Normally, you don't see that a lot. Um, and 
And so as soon as my wife pointed that out, that's when I thought, oh, okay, I, I got to do this. And I called them and I said, yes. Well, I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing I really loved about it too, is that, you know, like that XKCD cartoon I just showed you, scientists are funny. Yes. <laughs> it, it's funny. I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, sort of as, as I've been thinking about the movie now as to why scientists are funny. And mm-hmm. I, I actually have a theory. I don't know if it's right, well, but what is it? I think that science by its nature is based on failure. Because of the nature of science is we try things we don't know mm-hmm. and we screw up a lot because that's not, you're, you're, all, you're always, you have theories, but in order to find something new, you have to mess up a lot to get to the new result. And so it's, it's, a, it's a profession that you're dealing with failure constantly. And I think in order to do that, you can either be despondent or you can develop a sense of humor about it. And I really think that, because it, it's a specific type of humor. It's not, That's a really good point. It's like, I call it Gary Larson humor. It's the, the far side, oh, which sure. was my favorite. Yeah. Comic strip. I, you know, I've yet to meet a scientist that doesn't like Gary Larson. Right. I don't want to generalize, but I see it all the time. Like if you go into any lab, you'll see a Gary Larson cartoon somewhere on somebody's desk. Like that, that, that I think scientists kept Gary Larson's wall calendars in business for all those years, you know. That's really, that's really interesting because to me... Um, Scientists always have a sense of humor that I ex- associate with being Jewish. Oh, interesting. But it's kind of like, but that's sort of the same thing. It's like, it's, it's like yeah, we had to deal with this before. Yeah. yeah, you have to deal with it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. So, but, that, but the humor thing is really, it's key to this. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it was a big part of the book and it really comes through in the, uh, in the film, so much so that it's in the musical and comedy category for the Golden Globes. Right. I mean, so how, you know, did you have any feeling at the time that you were writing a comedy? No, but I am used to, in general, working on things that are hard to classify. And I think that's actually, it's not by design, but I'm, I'm certain that that's what I gravitate towards. You know, I, I have to deal with this on everything I work on. What is it? You know, and I always say, I leave that to other people. Other people can tell me what it is. I'll just make what I'm responding to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I did this movie, Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. and... They would say, oh, it's a horror movie. And I would always say, I guess. I guess it's a horror movie. It's also a comedy. And it's also a weird science fiction film. You know, like it's weird. Like, I guess I like things that are difficult and that sort of straddle, have their, you know, feet in in many different territories. Um, And so, yeah, I don't, I, I guess I don't think about it. I just think about what's right for each story and what's, what's right for the tone. Tone to me is everything when you're making a movie and knowing what, what movie you're making. And for this one, the comedy was so important that it felt like the sort of thing that really needed to be protected. Cause if we strip that out, we'd lose a key part of the soul. Sure. Yeah. It's, and, and Matt Damon seemed like it was like a perfect, is a perfect candidate. It's like, that's, it sounds like the kind of thing he was like, when, when you've seen him do his funnier die videos or the, you know, stuff he's done with, with uh, Jimmy Kimmel, it's very much in the same vein. Yeah. And we needed somebody that could switch gears between those two things, which is hard. You know, he makes it look easy, but it's not to go from, the sort of solitary desperation and fear to a joke in the same scene. Not a lot of actors can do that the way he does it. And, and I, you know, look, I, I've said this before. I don't know what we, what we would have done if he said no. Sure. Yeah. No. But the, um, what films were you thinking about when you were writing this? What, was there anything that kind of was like, you know, like that was like a tone inspiration for you or. Not really. I tend to not think about other films. What, um, once I've, said yes i sort of shut down mm-hmm. and just try to focus on the film at hand it's only after the fact that i look at stuff and go oh okay there's some overlap there i can see where the inspirations come from but 
Um, no, I, I guess when I, I was thinking a lot about religious movies. Um, why were you were thinking, why were you thinking a lot about religious movies? Because I, I, I sort of part, like I said earlier, like it's half our, half your job is getting bills through Congress. Sure. And I needed to explain to the studio what type of movie this was because you know, they're, they're scared. Sure. Studios can be scared. And to, to be fair, they were wonderful and they really did believe in us. But in, the, in those early stages, they couldn't quite get their heads around what is this movie? You know, is it just a movie about a guy doing lab experiments all the time? And I said, <laughs> like, and I said, no, no, think of it, think of it like um, sort of the classic in classic mythological or religious terms. It's a man lost in the wilderness and has to rely on his own faith to get him through it. It's just in this case, the faith is science. And mm -hmm. so if you structure it, and I sort of structured the movie that way, and so much so that by the third act, you actually just have him standing on these vistas, you know, like we were looking at. And it's why Ridley, I think one of the things he responded to right away, it's sort of that the, the classic Ten Commandments quality of it. Sure. You know, they just guy alone with nothing but his faith to, to guide him. And it, it, that helped give us a, a structure for the movie. Right. So it's like, so were there, were there religious films that you were looking at for that? Well, the, it's hard not to think of the Ten Commandments. Sure. You know, it's, it's really, the, it's Moses. I kept coming back to Moses. And it's funny because Ridley was working on Exodus at the time. And we were having conversations about just sort of, I think it was in our heads, mm -hmm. that idea as, as we were working on it. Um, you at one point were looking at directing this. And um, what, do you feel like this is, a, you know, how different? How different of a film is this from what you had envisioned for yourself? I mean, I'm sure it's like, you know, that's... It's a much better film. <laughs> Turns out Ridley Scott is just a much better director than I Who knew? I know. It's not, it's weird. It's, it's nice to see a young up-and-comer really get his <laughs> I'm very lucky as a screenwriter. It's, you're, you're just fortunate when you get to work with people this talented. And this was one of those weird experiences where everyone brought something to the table um, in a way that makes the screenwriter happy because we usually are a petulant breed. Who so are, yeah, exactly. And it, that was not the case here. This was the case where every day I would see what they were doing and go, oh, that's so much better, you know? And, it, and it's fun. It's the fun part of the job. So, you were, you know, as you said, you know, making a film in Hollywood's a lot like getting a bill through Congress. And as you say, it's like, you know, the stuff that you like isn't very clean and classifiable. It's like, is you know... How do you, you know, what's, what's your strategy for trying to make, to get through that, to get through that, you know, labyrinth? I, I think the first part is to respect where studios are coming from. Because I think what can happen is, as an artist, we get very petulant and say, well, this is what's right. Um, therefore, give me all the money so I can go do it. And if you, if a studio feels that you're being responsible about the business side of things, I think they, they relax. And so we had very frank conversations early about how much should this movie cost? You know, what I, cause I always say I want studios to feel comfortable that they're going to make money cause then they'll let me be nuts. Mm -hmm. You know, like this, sure. this is the lesson I learned on cabin in the woods. We made it for so cheap that when, cause normally what happens is it, it, on every movie is there, there's a point where studios start to get nervous <laughs> and certainly with cabin when they saw how much blood I was throwing around, <laughs> they were, they were nervous. And I, that, those were when I would fall back and say, listen, we had these math conversations about the money mm -hmm. and you guys are going to be fine. You remember, we all had those conversations and because we made this movie for so cheap, you're going to be fine. And they, and that works. I found that works. Cause then, 
they just, they just don't want to lose money. And I respect that. You know, I don't want to lose anybody money either. And it, I, I think we have to take responsibility for that. And with The Martian, it really was, okay, what do you guys need to feel comfortable? And they said, we need a movie star. And I said, great, I want a movie star too. Give me the list of, let's compare our lists. And Matt Damon's number one on both of our lists. And then we said, okay, if we can get Matt Damon, we'll do this. And that was what it really came down to. So now we just had to cross our fingers and hope Matt said yes. And lo and behold, he did. He did. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you get the sense? Because you're right about, you know, filming um, artists are not always sensitive to the needs of the business side. And, you know, there's and there's argument for why they're not. Yes. How did you get that sensibility? Because I agree. I think that probably serves you really well. But it's like, how did you get the, you know, the sensibility that that was a good way to go? I, I think I, I just like having creative freedom. And so I will do anything that will allow me creative freedom. And when I realized, oh, if, if I do this, it'll give me more creative. If I can speak this language, it'll make my, it's selfish. It'll make my life easier, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> it's just a selfish way of, of, of getting to do ridiculous things. Because um, you, you, and I think part of it is you just see your, your peers screw up. And, and I've been lucky that, uh, I get to I get to be around a lot of movies, and you can see the largesse of films, where they just go off the rails with how much they cost. Sure. And you get to do that once or twice, and then studios just start saying no, and so you try to be responsible. And the problem is, we're it's a very volatile business. We don't know. We don't always know. So sometimes you think this is what the math is telling you. Mm -hmm. I guess I do like math too. I do like numbers, and I respond. And and studios are much more. You know, the spreadsheet is becoming more important every day. Sure. Which I think a lot of people are always saying is the death of creativity. And I understand that. But I, I like to say there's a way we can use that against them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that, um, that that it also kind of re requires a certain kind of release of ego to be able to kind of take that kind of that kind of hardcore step back and say, okay, let's do the math here. Let's figure out what this what this is going to make this work to, in order to make, you know, to make your to get your script made. I guess so. I think... I'm just happy. I'm always okay saying no. I've learned that the the way I end up miserable is if I if we're making a movie and we're not on the same page. I'm ha I'm I, I I guess I always thought I'd start as a novelist, and there's part of me that would be happy to just go back to writing in a quiet room. So if if I have an idea that's going to cost four hundred million dollars, and and it's going to have a limited appeal, sure, like something like Cabin. If if Cabin in the Woods cost four hundred million dollars, sure. I wouldn't make it because it should, I'd write it as a book, you know, because I, I understand it shouldn't cost that much. Like movies don't have to appeal to everyone. Not right. every movie has to appeal to everyone. I actually like movies better sometimes when they're smaller and for a niche audience. Like that's a lot of my favorite movies, quite frankly. And so you just have to understand that because you get in trouble when you try to please everyone. Boy, that is, that is the best way I know to make a mediocre movie. <laughs> you have, you have, have you had to deal with that experience before? It can happen to you. You, what what's tricky about this is you you can start second guessing yourself. You know, you can start if you put your movie up in front of people. It's hard not to let those opinions in. You know, and and you want to be open to it, but at the same time you want to trust that it it's a singular vision. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's finding that balance. And if you're not careful. You can really let the other side overwhelm it, you know. Like that's why I try to stay off the internet when I'm working on something, you know. <laughs> not out of disrespect. Sure. It's just it's it's not that the the comments hurt. It's that 
you're, you're already second guessing yourself anyway. You don't need more ammunition to second guess yourself. Like your job is to protect the creative, the creative space and any, at least for me, some, some people really get energized by it, but I find I just need quiet and calm. Um, what have, how have you found the uh, difference in terms of working in TV versus film? Oh, uh, TV is so much harder. It's really the dirty secret. Like it, <laughs> that I think movies, I guess it, it, things have changed because TV is, uh, TV's always been good. I feel like that's a cliche to say TV's gotten better. TV's always been really good. But I think uh, I, I always put film on a pedestal. And now that I do it, TV's so much harder because every eight days you have to come up with a new 60 pages and that it's brutal. It's just so hard to have to do that. But what's great about that is you don't have a lot of time to second guess. You, you really have to just put your head down and go. And it's a wonderful training ground. But, you know, movies, it's nice to to take two years to work on 120 pages. You can, you can be a little more, you can, you can find those moments a little easier rather than the what shoots tomorrow, oh God, come up with something. Sure. Which is sort of inherent to television. What about and so? What is the what's the difference like in terms of the collaborations then you know, with between? Yeah, well, the nice thing about TV is you have a writers' room, sure. which is you know not always the case on movies. And a writers' room is great because you have other people that are there to help you when when you're falling down. Um, and I miss that. It's the thing I miss most about uh, television for sure. And, but you try. But I've been lucky with movies. I try to take that same approach and work with department heads and do those same things because it's fun, quite frankly. Yeah, well, what does that look like in terms of like working with the different department heads or the, or the, you know, or with Ridley or... Well, certainly with some... When you've got Ridley on the case, I'm not really needed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just more about... Um, I'm just there as a resource, you know. Uh, certainly with this movie, a lot of it, a lot of the science and stuff that I... Since it all had to go through me, I knew who to talk to. So they could say, oh, I need help with the science. I say, okay, call so-and-so at NASA. You know, like talk to Andy because Andy uh, was frankly the best resource on the movie. So it's a lot of that and a lot of clarifying and just any questions they have, just answer them. It's, it's pretty easy when you, like for me as a screenwriter, when, when someone like Ridley's doing your movie, you're, you're just calm. You're just like, Ridley, how can I help? <laughs> What would do you have any interest in going back to TV? I don't yeah, know, I, I do love it. It I don't love the 22, 26 episode a year grind, but these days that's getting less and less. So the idea of the twelve episode season is much more fun. I would hope I get back there sooner or later. What are you working on now? What's the what's the? I'm just writing my next thing on spec. I'm hope I'm hoping to have that done in the next two or three months, and then I can announce or talk about it more in depth. And when you say it's on spec, is, it, is this a pure spec or is this something which you, where you're already talking to directors about it? Or No, it's, it's for me to direct. It's my next sort of project to direct. And, and no, I'm not talking to anyone about it yet because I don't, I don't even mean to sound coy. It's just, it's still gestational. Yeah. And you sort no, of no. learn like, like, okay, I got to make sure this, this is, this is good before, I, you know, because it's, you know, scripts are hard, man. I'll tell you what. And uh, I'm about halfway through it and I, I think it's good so far, but we'll see. So when you say scripts are hard, is, how does it compare to directing? They're very different. Um, script is really, it, it, I guess it's the difference between the introvert and the extrovert. You know, scripts are very much just you sitting by yourself worrying about one thing, which is the story. Whereas directing is much more about leading 300 people up a mountain. You know, like it really is managing artists. And that's fun, but it's a different, it's an entirely different skill set. 
you know, and the thing that's, the thing that's, the reason I feel lucky is that they're so different that I can do, uh, you know, sometimes I want to just be alone in a quiet room and that's fun. And I'll do that for six months and then I'll say, no, I'm lonely. Let's go hang out with artists. And then you go direct and you hang out with artists and it's great. And you do that for six months and then you think, all right, I'm ready to go be alone again. <laughs> and it's, it's fun to shift gears. Which one, actually, where do you fall on that? And that, because um, you see, it seems like you have aspects of both in you, introvert, extrovert, but where, which one would you say you're? I did definitely the introvert. I mean, I think, I think in general writers, that's where they, that's how they come to be writers. I don't want to, again, I don't want to generalize too much because everyone's different, but sure. I think the, the thing about that leads a person to just sit in a room by themselves and write, because you ha- it's a very solitary, solitary profession. It tends to appeal more to introverts. Well, it's like, how do, in terms of your, you know, in terms of what appealed to you, because you're right, it's like, it is, it is the most solitary profession. Right. What brought you to it in the first place? I don't know. I, I guess for me, it was a love of reading, you know, and I, and I'm not sure I know if we go past that, what made me love reading. I don't know. But from my earliest uh, memories, uh, my earliest memories are books and just sitting in the corner and reading. And, and I've always been that way. I talked to my parents and they said, yeah, you just loved it. You, that's all you did. I think part of it, <laughs> frankly, might be growing up in New Mexico with nothing to do. I mean, there was really nothing to do. Yeah, what was do. that like? Los Alamos, I mean. I, I mean, it's tricky because you don't know any different when you're, you know, it was my hometown and it's a lovely town. Like you're, you feel safe and you can have fun and play in the dirt. It's a lot of playing in the dirt. Um, but there wasn't, it was very isolated. I mean, it, Sounds it, like Mars. Yeah, the, I, I, I mean, the whole town, it's true because the whole town was designed to be isolated. It was designed right. to be hidden away so no one could find it. There's one road leading into the mountains and one road out. And so like it, little things like I remember we didn't, and I liked pop culture, you know, as a kid growing up and you couldn't find it anywhere. Like we didn't have like a record store. You'd have to drive. Really? Yeah, you'd have to drive to uh to santa fe to get if you wanted to and how far a, away is santa fe from... an hour away okay so if you wanted to get a cd when i was growing up you, you'd have to drive down there to do that and so i think as a result uh media took on a it was it was more important to me like i, I you know movies were exciting because you they were rare it was hard to get you know when even videotapes came out you'd have to drive to santa fe to get them you know <laughs> to, to watch really? stuff yeah and so how was TV reception out there? Yeah, it was fine for the three channels, but it was hard to get. You couldn't get cable lines dug to your house. Like you just couldn't get sure. that stuff for a long time. So I think I think that's partially why I gravitated to it because books were easy. We had libraries, so you could get books. And and, and so I devoured a lot. Yeah, and uh, in terms of the you know, in terms of the populace, because you're saying that the, the, the the scientists sound like you know what you're what we hear in the Martian. Yeah. Um, were you aware of that when you were growing up? Were you aware of that of that of that energy, that kind of intelligence? Yeah, mixed with um, you know physicists are strange. They're just <laughs> they're a different breed. I remember one day I was uh, my mom's a teacher and I was at her school and the the parents were dropping their kids off at school right. and this would this would have been in the in the early nineties and. Um, one of the guys, one of the physicists, you know, kind of came in rumpled with his shirt untucked and dry. And he said, oh, did you see us on TV last night? And my mom was like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, the Patriot missile. Did you see our missile on television last night? It worked. <laughs> like he was so excited that the Patriot missile worked. 
and it was such a weird thing, you know, like there's this war going on and, but he's excited about his missile that's taken out other missiles, like the, the science of it. So it's a very strange, you know, that's a very strange upbringing to, yeah. <laughs> because it, because you forget, like, it's all just people. It's just ordinary people. Like they still have to drop their kids off and then go figure out how to make missiles. It's a strange town. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, but at the same time, it's like, that's his job. That's, yeah. you know, it's like, it might, it, you know, it might not have worked. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit too about uh, Sinister Six. What's going on with that? Uh, it's sort of on hold for a while, and I don't really have a better answer than that. You know, we uh, it, it sort of got it was a casualty of the the Sony hack and sort of what happened right. with that. And 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 you know, the good news is, as a Spider Man fan, I'm, I'm thrilled to see Spider Man show up in uh, in Captain America or, or whatever Marvel sure. has planned and. Uh, I, I'm really excited, and then we'll see. You know, I don't, I don't really know. It's more a question for Sony and and Marvel and what they want to do. But they, uh, I love all of them, and they know I love the character, and so maybe someday we'll figure it out. How do you? What are your feelings around the future of? This is going to be kind of a big question, but it's yeah. like the future of film, and so like because in terms of when I, you t the movies like the, you know, like a Sinister Six or Captain America. I mean, those are like the literally the big superhero movies, um, the event stuff. And um, which is so much about what is defining movie making now. Yeah. And do you feel from, you know, from you, from especially because with you, you know, talking to these people, being in the boardrooms, talking about the numbers, how much is, is like, do you feel like the fears are increasing in terms of, you know, what they're what they're willing to take risks on and, you know, that they're going to keep betting more and more on the marvels of the world? I don't know. I, I'm always wary because and I always tell this to young screenwriters that not to listen too much to what's fashionable or not to listen too much to the sky is falling. Cause I've heard that a lot and I've not been doing this 20 years and it's all, it, it never seems like it's a good time. It always feels like it's the death of art. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear that over and over, but I, I suspect that, that you, there's still great movies being made. You know, it, it can be harder to get them made, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you ask somebody, you know, I think we have a, there's a tendency to romanticize the past but people are always, you know, this, it's a business and it's always been a business. And so there've always been the struggle between what's commercial and what's artistic. And you're just trying to find that balance. I think, you know, as long as people are paying to go see these things, the studios are going to keep making them and then they won't, you know, at a certain right. point it'll change and then something else will be. And I try not to worry about it too much. I try to just figure out what I'm passionate about and then see if it makes sense for somebody to make it, you know, it's sort of a two-part process. Yeah. So, I mean, so, for, so for you, there's like the but the budget issue. It's like you're cognizant of it, but it doesn't sound like you really write to a budget. I, no, I certainly don't chase. Yeah, I don't chase it. It's more because yeah. I, I have ten ideas. I look at them. Two of them probably make sense as movies, and then I go, okay, so let's talk about those two because those are the ones that. Again, I don't want anyone to lose money, and I you just try to be aware, like, okay, these other eight ideas, I love them too. Maybe I'll write them as a book someday. Maybe I'll do it as a comic book. I, you know, you just try to find, be responsible about that. Right. Well, Drew, thank you so much for your time. Oh, this was a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of IndieWire Influencers. And please check out our other fine podcasts, Screen Talk and Very Good TV, which are available at iTunes and our own IndieWire.com.